This morning we continue our series on the gift of prophecy versus the gift of tongues. Two spiritual gifts that no longer exist, but are an indication, though very real, 2,000 years ago or so, an indication of our lives today of how we serve and use our spiritual gifts that do exist in our own lives and within the church. Spiritual gifts that can be used to focus on the edification or the building up of the entirety of the church, other believers that you interact with, all, in other words, or spiritual gifts from a heart attitude that can focus only on ourselves. And as we've unpacked this with the background of Paul explaining how the gift of tongues specifically was so much less effective, edifying, abundant than the gift of prophecy, specifically because one focused on one and the other focused on all, you may have asked yourself, what's the point then? Why give the gift of tongues? Because we know that it was indeed a true spiritual gift, the ability to miraculously speak in a language that had previously been unlearned but was spoken somewhere else in the world. What's the point? Why do that? If Paul is saying not only does it lead to this selfishness, but it has no edification value even when exercised properly. Well, this morning we get into verses 20 through 21 of 1 Corinthians 14, and we will see some reasons for the gift of tongues, which again highlights our need to focus on others, to focus on the edification of the church, to not be selfish. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14. Verses 20 through 25, our passage for this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 through 25. Follow along as I read in the New American Standard. He writes, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. This morning, five supports for Paul's warning about tongues. Five supports for Paul's warning about tongues. The first is the pretense of tongues, we find in verse 20, where he writes, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. A valuable principle to be sure, we cannot lose sight of the fact that it is within the wider context of how the Corinthians are using the gift of tongues. We have previously established that the background to the whole section is the Corinthians' misuse of this particular gift. Other gifts, to be sure, other sins they're committing, as we have seen throughout the epistle of 1 Corinthians, but specifically the gift of tongues. They were using them not for their intended purpose, 
Again, it's a gift from God with a particular goal in mind. But they were using them for, or using it rather, for self-glorification, for self-seeking. You see, the problem in what they were doing is that the Christian life largely centers around not yourself, but other people. Focusing on others, serving others, building others up. And this is even more true when we're talking about a gift that God has given you for that very purpose. So when someone has the mature ability and purpose to focus on others, God-given ability, but only focuses on themselves, we have a problem, and we call that, Paul calls that childish. It's immature. That's what Paul is saying here. When Paul calls them children in their thinking, he uses a grammar in the Greek that stresses the character of a child. Obviously, physically speaking, age-wise, they are adults, but they're reflecting the character of a child and how they are thinking, particularly in their exercise of the gift of tongues and how they treat each other, which is the same thing. You see, we know this. Children tend to focus on themselves. They have not grown or matured to a point in where other people are a priority. They need to be taught manners. They need to be taught how to be polite. They need to be taught how to consider others before themselves. Many people call it the golden rule, right? We teach children this. But children naturally focus on themselves. They want attention. We have to teach children to wait until adults finish speaking before we give them attention. Because otherwise, they just keep pulling. Mommy, 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 mommy. They don't get it. And that makes sense because they're kids. They get excited about certain things. And they want even more attention. And children, if they don't get what they want, if they don't behave, or if others don't behave the way they want them to, then they get louder. Mommy, mommy! Maybe they start throwing things. They start pushing. They start tapping, which turns into hitting. Then they get mad. They throw tantrums. They yell and they blame others. And then they get to an age where they can manipulate people to do whatever they want. This is what children do. And this is what the Corinthians were doing with their spiritual gifts. To the point that the entirety of the church was no longer behaving like the church. They were all focused on themselves. And for those who were focused on the right things, those who were, who were blowing up their gift of tongues, drawing attention to themselves, putting down others as we have seen in this study, changing everything so that the focus is just on them, they didn't care that the church wasn't edified. They didn't care that they were dishonoring God. They didn't care that they were acting like children because they got the attention that they wanted. They felt good about themselves. They were able to get people to do what they wanted. And this is what Paul has been rebuking. This is why such a large section on this particular issue. Think about it. When you have a group whose goal is to help others, that's their goal. Their goal is to grow together. Not as one, but together. 
but everyone in that group is only focusing on themselves. In this case, the point that other people don't even understand the language they're speaking, then you have a complete breakdown of the goal, what makes that group that group. You have a complete breakdown. It simply doesn't work. It wouldn't work if a technology company decided to make wooden toys that involve no technology. It's a breakdown. It doesn't make sense. It it wouldn't make sense for an architect to meet with their client and say, oh, I'm here to program your iPhone. Why did you hire us? Because you build buildings. It doesn't make sense to do something that is contrary to your very existence and why God and how God has gifted you and made you and built you. This principle is why children need adults to correct them, and this is why believers acting like children need the Apostle Paul to correct them. To be clear, again, going back to what I said earlier, speaking in tongues, exercising a gift from God, was not childish in and of itself. How they were using them and displaying them with the intent of seeking their own glory at the cost of benefiting others is what is childish, which is why Paul says, don't be childish in your thinking, in your heart, in your disposition. Children, real-life children, do this because they have not yet learned how to sacrifice for others, to consider others to think maybe that adult or that other kid is right and they're wrong. But Christians, we know better. Not only are we adults socially, physically, biologically, but we have been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given spiritual gifts. We have the Word of God. We understand how to sacrifice for others, how to consider others above and beyond ourselves. Difficult? Absolutely. Excel still more? Every day. But we know this is what needs to be done. See, they want what they want, and if they don't get it, they will do everything in their power to make others bend to their will, even taking something that God has ordained and making it about themselves. Adults don't do that. Adults, for the most part, can't do that if they want to function in society. If they do, if you have a boss like this, you use words like dictator or terrorist. It's not normal. So, with this simple yet profound rebuke, Paul addresses their wrong thinking. He goes on, however, to tell them, on the contrary, to be infants in regard to evil. He's not contradicting himself. He's talking about different areas of thinking and life. Don't be children in your thinking in terms of being selfish and self-centered, but in regard to evil things, be naive. See, evil here refers to wickedness, as you know, maliciousness, also ill will. It refers to the consequences, frankly, of their childish behavior. We know that in the Corinthian church, because of how people were behaving, there were broken relationships. There were all sorts of sins that Paul has addressed 
We've seen throughout this epistle. And what Paul is saying is when it comes to these sorts of things, retain a childish innocence. Be unblemished, unspoiled, uninfluenced by the ways of the world. And friends, that is so key. Because most of us, if not all of us, before we were Christians, some of us even after we were Christians, that naivete was gone, long gone. We've done things, we've experienced things. We were of the world, we were enslaved to sin. And we can't erase those things. We can't, as much as we want to, we can't erase those experiences. We cannot erase our understanding of the ways of the world. And I want to tell you, that's okay because there's a thing called God's grace. God is gracious. He has forgiven you. It's okay that in the timeline of your life, these events exist. That's okay. You can't somehow wash your brain or try to erase those things. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying now. Now be innocent. Stop doing those things if you're still doing them. Stop looking at those things on the internet if you're looking at them. Stop being influenced by the world. Stop Googling something because you're curious what this slang word means or this sexual term means and then you'll never forget it. You always know it. Be naive. Be innocent. That's okay. That is commanded. So right now, practice a childlike innocence. And specifically, what Paul is referring to in this context is not so much sexual immorality or evils of the world, but their malicious ill will that is resulting from their selfishness through their misuse of the gift of tongues. He says, be innocent about with the things that are, are selfish. Be, be innocent and naive about the ways that you can manipulate others or, or neglect others for the sake of your own glory. Don't do that. Be an infant in that regard. Be innocent. You can't do this if you are giving into the world. You can't do this if you are letting the childish thinking of those around you drag you into the world. You see, it's not just stop doing these things. It is, as we know from other places in Scripture, to flee. To flee temptation. To not be okay with it. To not even say, well, this is just the the world around me and so I'm just going to walk into this cloud of poison and try not to breathe deeply you know it's we we get frustrated by the fact that our world is so tolerant now there's some things that we should be tolerant of there's some things that the world is tolerant of that is just making this world more wicked and frankly things more difficult for us But you can use that tolerance to your advantage and to your spiritual growth. You can ask people, hey, I know this is kind of what you do and that's your life. I'm not judging. But could you not use that language around me? Can you not talk about those things around my kids? 
can you not look at those things on the internet when I'm in the office? Look, I, I'm not going to report you to HR, but could you just, out of respect for me, not do those things around me? It's interesting, I've noticed, and take this illustration for what it's worth. It's interesting that to me that throughout my marriage, the last 10 years at least, since I've had children, I've noticed whether it be in Europe where it tends to be more common or in Asia where it's very much more common and even here, when someone is taking a cigarette break and they see me walking down the road, they will put their cigarette behind their back. They'll make sure not to take a puff or if they have before they saw my children, they'll hold it in until my kids are far from them so as not to blow that secondhand smoke into their faces. I have noticed in the past year or two or whenever it became legalized that marijuana smokers do not do that. They don't care. It is just the depravity of the world. It's this, hey, it's legal now. I can do what I want. Why should I consider you? Why should I consider other people? And Paul is saying, that's just childish. We know this even outside of the church. You know people in your, in your workplace, in your family, who are grown adults who act a certain way, Christian or not, you say, um, that's kind of childish. That's kind of immature. And Paul is saying, don't do this. In our next verse, which we're not at yet, Paul quotes Isaiah 28, 11 through 12. We'll get to that in a minute. And what's interesting is that the verse right before that in Isaiah, verses 9 and 10 in Isaiah 28, which Paul does not refer to, but it speaks of the same concept. There were those in Isaiah's day who refused to listen to the prophetic message of God and in their own minds, in their own minds, they were wise, they were gifted, and they were accusing the message from Isaiah of being childish, when in reality they were the ones acting like children because they were ignoring the warning and condemnation, impending doom from God. They thought they were too wise, too right to listen to the message, and is the irony of ironies for the Assyrian invasion was the result now, we don't know if Paul had these verses in mind when he wrote verse 20, but it is very fitting. In the same way, there were Corinthians who thought they were mature and special. In fact, they were immature and disruptive. You have looked back at times in your life, perhaps in college. Uh, college was rough for some of us as we look back and, and the things we did because we thought we were cool because we got attention and now you look back and say, now I know why everyone was laughing and not following me. Right? You look back and you still, you know, it's 20, 30, 50 years later and you still get red in the cheeks. You get hot and embarrassed because you're like, oh, I can't believe that. Those things I did when I was back in college. But back when you did it, you thought you were mature. You thought you were the bee's knees, you were the best. 
And now you look back and go, man, I was so immature compared to my peers. Maybe if in just that one act, at that one party, in that one class, or whatever you did, right? And this is the same thing. In the moment, in the speaking of tongues, in the people going, wow, they felt special. Because their ego and their pride was lifted up. I don't consider him much of a theologian, but in terms of worldly success and secular even idolization, Bruce Lee even spoke to this in an interview. He says, people, you walk into this room and your chest is puffed up and your head is filled with what you think is something special and your, your abilities, but you're nothing special. It's just pride and ego and arrogance. In the same way, there are believers today who can fall into the temptation of thinking that they are the mature ones. They are the special ones. They are the ones that should be followed when in fact they are sinful and hurtful and have ways to grow. I'm so thankful for uh, one man I've been discipling. And we talk through issues and challenges of our own lives as well as what we see within the church. And I asked him once, I said, does it ever occur to you sometimes that as you kind of evaluate things that maybe you're the immature one? And with great maturity, he said, absolutely, all the time. And I think we would do well to think that, especially when we start thinking, oh, I, I'm the mature one. To think, hmm, maybe I'm the immature one and everyone else is mature and they're just slowly tolerating us until the Holy Spirit grows us. That is probably not the case all the time, but I believe humility and a focus on God's glory and our own spiritual growth, we would do well to understand that that may very well be the situation. And so Paul circles back at the end of 1420 to say that they are to be mature again in their thinking. Specifically in this context, use your spiritual gift wisely. That is, in accordance with Scriptures. Think about it. Someone gets an expensive gift a couple weeks ago throws away the instructions, doesn't even know what it is, takes that $600 iPad and uses it as a coaster or their high-speed gaming computer as a step stool. Now, if it was a kid doing that, you'd sit him down and go, oh no, look at this. Press this button here, screen turns on, you can actually touch the screen. We used to have things called keyboards. Now you just touch the screen. Take pictures, get on the internet. Oh, wow, Daddy, thank you. If it was an adult, you'd say, hey, dummy. You'd say, are you kidding me? You just put a hot hot pot of soup on that iPad because you thought it was used to protect your table it's it's done hope you enjoy your thousand dollar bowl of soup <laughs> that's exactly what's happening here they have been given a gift that has so much potential and they're using it as a pot holder 
you, Christian today in 2022, if you can believe that, you have a spiritual gift coupled with your physical and spiritual maturity flowing from saving grace. Are you going to sit on it like someone using their iPad as a potholder? Or are you going to open it up and use the infinite possibilities within? Support number two. Second support for Paul's warning about tongues, the punishment of tongues. The punishment of tongues. In verse 21, he says, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. He says he's quoting the law here. This means the Old Testament law, capital L law, refers to the Old Testament. If you have the NAS, the Old Testament quotation is signaled by the words in all caps. If you have another version, the quotation is signaled by quotation marks. (laughs) This is from Isaiah 28, 11 and 12. The context back in Isaiah 28, I briefly mentioned earlier, is a pronouncement of judgment against God's people Israel. The previous verses talk about the priests and the prophets getting so drunk, drunk, that they have strange visions and think those are the right prophecy for the people. They're not from God, they're from their own intoxicated minds. And Israel, as you know at this point and at many points in their history, has sunk to a level of debauchery and sinfulness that warranted a stern warning from God through the true prophet here, Isaiah. But because of their supposed wisdom, as I mentioned earlier, coupled with their disobedience, evidenced by their love of strong drink, the leaders of Israel mocked the prophecy to the point of declaring it nonsense, fit only for children. And this brings us to the passage that Paul quotes. Let me explain this in the context of tongues. Why does Paul bring this up in the context of tongues? See, since Israel had rejected and even ridiculed what God spoke to them in their own language through Isaiah and previous prophets, he now lays down the threat. Because of their rejection of what they heard in their own language of judgment coming in a foreign language, namely the language of the Assyrians who will invade and rule them. And they will be surrounded by a people that now control them and rule them and they don't understand a word because they speak in their tongue. And the point Paul makes is that when God spoke in a clear language, it was to reveal His will, to comfort, to counsel, and oftentimes in the prophets to warn But when God speaks in a foreign language, it was to judge. It was to punish. Paul's point is not that God is judging the Corinthian church by their use of tongues or by the giving of the gift of tongues, but he is pointing out that tongues were not something that edified or helped Israel. When it got to the point of tongues, it was quite the opposite, and we see the connection to the church of what Paul has been saying this whole time. The Corinthian misuse of tongues is not helping the church. It is hurting it. Let me illustrate this. Perhaps this will help if you're still unclear. 
What Paul is doing by using this Old Testament illustration would be similar to me telling my children, let's say they were doing something unwise, eating something they, they found on the floor, the ground at the park. And I said, you know, hundreds of years ago, if you did that, you would have died. It's not that eating that food would kill them today because now we have modern medicine that would protect them. But I'm making a point about the danger of this particular behavior by explaining the ramifications of it from olden times, if you will. And the comparison simply highlights the harm and foolishness of their actions. And with this example laid as a foundation, Paul then goes on to explain what then is the purpose of tongues, which is our third support for Paul's warning about tongues, the purpose of tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, 22. So then, because of what we have seen in the Old Testament, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. And now we'll see he brings back in the comparison to prophecy. But first the word, so then, since God used a foreign language not as a means to help or encourage his people, in the same way, so then, tongues today are not for his people. Rather, they are a sign for unbelievers, for non-Christians. How so, and how does this connect to that old Testament prophecy. A sign of judgment and alienation on them as Corinthians as it was with Israel. See, we see this. The idea of the signs of God alienating unbelievers even in the life of Jesus. Both His parables and the signs, the, the miracles that He performed What did it do to those who already disbelieved? It hardened them. It made them reject Him, refuse Him even more to the point of the cross. They dug in their heels. It is true that some repented and we praise God for that. It is true that the gift of tongues is elsewhere seen as a means of evangelism. That's very good. But the point Paul is making here is that tongues are so much for the judgment of unbelievers in that they will further reject him that they are on the opposite side of the spectrum of edifying the saints. Because again, even in his explanation of the purpose of tongues is to highlight what is good about prophecy and what the believers are supposed to do. And so he's almost using, using a literary term, he's almost using the unbelievers and the response to tongues as a foil to help sustain and strengthen his argument about what the Christians are supposed to do. Tongues are on the other side of the spectrum. They were used to judge Israel. They are used in Jesus' time to harden unbelievers. They are used in the Corinthians' time to harden and alienate unbelievers. What's on the other side of the spectrum? Prophecy. This, he says, is for believers. 
And so Paul continues with his explanation of how tongues alienate unbelievers in our next support for Paul's warning about tongues, the perplexity of tongues. Verse 23, Therefore, and here Paul elaborates on what the point he is making about how uh, the gift of tongues and the use of tongues is a sign for unbelievers and hardening them. He says, therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Here's the picture. Church is in session. It's a packed house. Everyone is there, as would be the case back then. And everyone, every single Christian is speaking in tongues. This is a hypothetical situation. And an unbeliever walks in. Back then, as today, unbelievers would visit the church. Back then, specifically, it would be uh, unbelieving slaves that were owned by Christians. It would be um, unbelieving family members or people who are just curious. Maybe they're going to a different religion every week and they're coming into the church. He also mentions ungifted who someone, uh, that's someone, as we saw last week, who doesn't speak in tongues, doesn't speak that language. And Paul says, what will the reaction be if everyone is speaking in different languages? Probably the same reaction some of you had the first time, if you've ever done this, you walked into an extremely charismatic church and people were speaking in tongues, someone was singing, someone was preaching, and at the same time people are screaming, they're rolling around on the floor. You thought, this is crazy. What in the world is going on? You would think that everyone was out of their mind, and Paul says the word mad means crazy, out of one's mind, frenzied, frenzied with anger. Now, understanding the historical context, what a visitor would think if that were to happen is that this is just another pointless and wild religion as is so common in all the other pagan religions within the city of Corinth. You see, back then, these mystery cults that we've spoken about before would have these ceremonies where people would uh, just, in, in, in a crazy, mindless fashion, beat drums. They would shriek. They would yell. They would even go into convulsions. And so people would come to the church and they would say, oh, it's just like any other religion out there. And what the church visitor wouldn't think, according to Paul, is that, wow, this must have something to do with the one true God. They wouldn't. They'd think they're crazy. Just like the people worshiping Aphrodite or the people worshiping whatever. And so they'd make haste to the nearest exit, probably only because this was 2,000 years ago, otherwise they'd I pull out their cell phone and video it because no one's going to believe this unless I show them a video. You know, throughout this series, I have likened tongues in contrast with prophecy to things like selfishness, the lack of serving, or other, any other outworking of the misuse of one's spiritual gift and salvation. And as the people of God, what does a visitor or unbeliever think when they enter our church and nobody is displaying the key component of Christianity and God, love. Nobody is serving. 
Everyone is clamoring to interrupt conversations so they can brag about themselves. Say, this is no different than the world. This is no different than my Christmas party a couple weeks ago. Everyone just talking about themselves and complaining. They won't think we're crazy, but they surely won't see any difference than the world or evidence that we are of the one true God. And I praise God that our church is not like that. You praise God that you don't belong to or you are not visiting today a church like this. But I want to zoom in, focus in beyond the church as a whole and ask every one of you and every one of you at home as individuals, what about you? Yes, the majority of the church, the theme of this particular church, Grace Church of the Bay Area, may be serving and loving and self-sacrificing, but are you? This goes back to how we started about people acting like children in their faith. Don't just rest on the fact that Grace Bay Area as a whole is not childlike in their thinking. Are you? Are you promoting the wrong thinking about who you are? When the world presses in on you and says you're wrong, do you agree and say, yeah, you're right. It's too much. Or do you stand up for God and what He has made you? See, this self-indulgent display of tongues does not represent God or what He desires of the Corinthians. There's so much that we can do today that also falls into that dangerous category of not representing God, not living out what God has made us and how He has gifted us. If the world is going to come into here, if the world is going to interact with you, and their response is that you're crazy or that we're crazy when they step into this church, may it be because we are living out our faith that is so contradictory to everything that they believe, everything that they see, everything that they can do, everything that they want to do, everything that they are enslaved to, not because we are abusing that. But... There's a counter to all this, of course. And let's look at this. Not tongues, but prophecy. Not focus on self, but all. Not abusing, but properly using the gift. Support number five, the powerlessness of tongues. Or you could say the power of prophecy. We've seen the pretense of tongues, the punishment, the purpose, the perplexity, now the powerlessness of tongues. Verses 24 and 25. But if I'll prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among us. Same scene. An unbeliever or someone who doesn't understand a foreign language, which is not being spoken in this scenario, walks into the church, but instead of tongues, everyone, everyone is prophesying, speaking forth the Word of God. Not all at the same time, but in order, 
as we'll see in, our, in, in the next section of uh, this study, Order in the Church. Rather than leaving and scoffing, their lives are changed. Paul says several things happen. First, he is convicted by all. Convict means to present evidence to someone in a way that drives that individual to conclude that the argument is correct. We see this in a court of law today. He was convicted of this crime. So maybe not him, but the judge and the jury were presented, indiv- uh, were presented uh, evidence to the point that they all said, yes, the argument this lawyer is making is correct conviction. Here it is used of sin. And so in speaking forth the Word of God, we are presenting evidence to someone of their sinfulness and they conclude that the argument is correct. There's an Old Testament principle of being exposed before God through the prophetic word resulting in conviction. And this carries the notion of being exposed or to bring to light. We use that term. Isn't that interesting? Oh, it was brought to light... So there was something hidden, there was something confusing, there's something that people didn't understand. Why did this happen? And it was brought to light that, well, that person had COVID. That's why they didn't show up to the big meeting or whatever it is. Oh. And it's not literally that we see a, a, a page where it's written, he had COVID, and we shine a light on it. It ju- just means it was brought to our attention. We Something that was... Proverbially, proverbially hidden in the darkness was now brought to light. But that term makes great sense when talking about sin. Because when talking about sin and repentance, when talking about depravity and grace, the words are used in Scripture, darkness and light. We are the light of the world because of God's Word. And so the sin is exposed, is brought to light, not like in the court of law. See, we won, aha, you bad person. No. It's because we look to God's Word, and then next He is called to account by all. Again, we see nuances of a court of law. It means to examine or cross-examine, to put through a series of questions such as by a judge or an attorney in a court of law. In Scripture, the implication is the deep probing of the Holy Spirit into the person's life, thereby once again exposing their sin and calling them to account before their Maker. Again, not so that we can judge or that we will mock, but before their God. In other words, the prophetic word searches and sifts the hearts of men such that one feels as if he is under scrutiny and the whole of his life is being searched for or searched through because indeed it is. All that is happening here is the Word of God. This is why people who are exposed to the Word of God don't just shift into neutral. They attack. They reject. They actively find arguments against. They go into debates. If this was just, well, either take it or leave it, 
God doesn't really do a powerful work of sifting your soul, then there would be no one who would adamantly declare, I am an atheist. There would be no point. It would just be the norm. But instead, there's atheism, there's groups of atheists, there are debates with atheists because they are fighting, they are digging, they are researching. Because in order for this sifting to not happen, when exposed to the Word of God, you have to fight, you have to run, you have to justify, because your conscience will tell you no, and you say yes, yes, yes. And your conscience will say yes, and you say no, no, no. And if you can't shut up your conscience, then you shut it up. Not just with drink, with women, with men, with whatever it is that distracts you and digs people deeper into the world. And you know what the beauty of this is? We don't have the gift of prophecy today, but we have the gift of God's Word, the completed prophecy, if you will. And all we have to do is share that with people. The prophetic word searches and sifts. Conviction leads to this accounting, which then leads to verse 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. The examination is complete and all is revealed. As we know from our own experience, this is not some sort of mystical TV screen in the sky. It's in their own mind. That individual is essentially turned inside out and finally sees themselves as God sees them. That is measured by the rule of His holiness and perfection. Verdict, you have fallen short, way short of the glory of God. And when that happens... There is no other logical or rational response than to fall on his face and worship God. The heart position of humility before God is reflected in the physical position of prostrating oneself before God. This being an act of confession both of sin and of faith. In other words, through the prophecy, not tongues, is the unbeliever brought to repentance. Worship is slightly redundant here as it means to fall down. But the idea of worship also means submitting, confessing, praising, exalting God. And as we pan out and we see the big picture, this person now declares not that the people of God are mad, but the end of verse 25, God is certainly among you. And now the process is complete. God is among him as well. The one who arrived in church as an enemy of God now leaves as a child of God. Minutes ago, an unbeliever, now a believer, an object of wrath, now an eternal recipient of grace. How did this happen? The Word of God was spoken in a language he understood. <laughs> it's almost laughable. It's laughable in contrast to tongues. It's laughable in our fear of evangelism. All of this happened because someone spoke the Word of God in our day, read the Scriptures. Same scene, different gifts exhibited, different heart attitude, vastly 
eternally different outcomes. Perhaps I don't need to say this, but as a side note, when you are confused, you don't know what to say in evangelism, you can write it down on a post-it note and just read verbatim those verses. You're not going to save anyone. You're not going to argue someone into heaven. If all God, very God, did to resist and turn away the temptations of Satan was to quote the Word of God, how dare we think that our own reasonings and rationale and attempts to convince will save someone? Just read them passages of Scripture. Tell them what they need to do. You're not going to come up with anything novel. What they need to do is in Scripture, so read those verses to them. All of this happens simply because they heard the Word of God. You know, maybe I'm taking this too far. But sometimes when we start jumping through hoops and we start building our own human concocted arguments, maybe that's the equivalent of speaking in tongues. You are bringing attention to yourself and your own abilities and your own way of presenting the truth and serving others. Maybe you're doing it out of a fear of man rather than out of a desire for everyone to look at you and bring attention to yourself, but it's still doing it against how God has designed it. Just give them the Word of God. Five supports for Paul's warning about tongues, the pretense of tongues, the punishment of tongues, the purpose of tongues, the perplexity of tongues, and the powerlessness of tongues or the power of prophecy. This past week, I was telling my children one of those Christian cliches that are cliches, yes, but oh, so powerful and true. And perhaps it's something you've, prob- you've heard before. I said boys, and understanding that at this point my boys are not Christians, but they understand they are in a Christian family and they are to live in a Christian way. I say, boys, you may very well be the only Bible that some of your friends ever read. You've heard this before. Not just their lives, but also in their understanding and repeating and explanation of Scripture. I told my oldest boy, I said, especially this one closest friend of yours who comes from a Muslim family, literally, definitely, you may be the only Bible he ever reads. And so I said, how do you want to live? Understand that I'm not trying to promote legalism. I'm not trying to get them to just please me any more than beyond the command to please and honor your parents because God instructs them to. But I wanted to show them the reality of how they live and how grace can be displayed through their lives and how God can make a difference even in an unbeliever's life because they belong to, as children, a believing family. 
Do they want to be someone who is selfish and unpleasant? Or do they want to be someone who is different than the world and shows them God and the truth living out in their family? I told them it is true too in the church. How they behave, how they interact and are an example to the other children and grace kids and grace tots. An example even to the parents here who just have babies or those who desire to have children. The question is for us as well. How do you want to live? Who do you want to reflect in your life? Do you want to be a child in your thinking and where you're focused only on one person and it's not capital P person because that person is you and not God? Or do you want to be mature and live as those back then were displaying and exhibiting the gift of prophecy? Focusing on others, focusing on God, living out what God desires to the point that what you say and how you serve builds up the church and draws unbelievers to fall on their faces in worship and repentance. How do you want to live? For one or for all? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity of your word and that it has bearing and testimony to our own lives even though times are different and the church is different. Help us to live in a way that we are focused primarily on you, secondarily on each other in a biblical way designed to build up, and then thirdly on the unbelieving world that we might speak forth the truth in our lives but with our words as well. We pray that you would use us to that end for your glory for the building up of your people and for the presentation of the gospel that leads to repentance among those whom we know and interact with that don't know you. Help us to that end, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand and we'll sing and then we'll take communion. If you're a believer here this morning, uh, we are going to take communion in the middle of the song. Uh, There are communion cups and bread all in one package at the back table there.